Uh, it is indeed my pleasure to introduce the last state keynote of the morning here at the 2015 uh, Tribune Festival, a conversation with the Honorable Joe Strauss, Speaker of the Texas House of Representatives. A San Antonio Republican who won his district 121 seat in a special election in February 2005, he was first chosen by his colleagues to lead them in 2009. He's now in his fourth term as Speaker and has filed to seek that post again, or says he intends to seek that post again, at the start of the 2017 session. If successful, he would tie Pete Laney and Gib Lewis as the longest serving speaker in Texas history. Who would have thunk it? Right? First, first, of course, he has to win re-election to the House. That's how this works. And he's heavily favored to win, even though he has two announced opponents five months from primary day. Heavily favored to win. A native of San Antonio and a fifth generation Texan, Speaker Strauss has an undergraduate degree from Vanderbilt University. He has an insurance investments and executive benefits practice in his hometown. His entree into politics came more than 25 years ago when he worked in the administrations of Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush and managed Lamar Smith's first campaign for Congress. Please join me in welcoming Speaker Joe Strauss. Thank you very much. Mr. Speaker. Good to be here with you all. Thank you. Sir, very good to have you here. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Good to be with you. So there's this speaker. He leads a House of Representatives that has an overwhelming majority of Republicans, enough of a majority that they can get anything they want done if they stick together, but they don't stick together. They pass some things, but there's a smallish band of grassroots conservatives who are hard to please, who think <laughs> the agenda of the House is too squishy. They think the Speaker is a closet liberal who compromises too easily with Democrats. They work hard to make his life difficult. They tie up the House calendar. They're egged on by grassroots conservatives in the Senate who are constantly mucking in the House's business and particularly in Speaker politics. Here's my question. Do you ever think to call John Boehner and say, I feel you? <laughs> <laughs> you must be looking at the situation in Washington going, <laughs> I know John Boehner and like him a lot. He's been to Austin quite a few times. Yep. Seen him around the state when he's been here. I have enormous respect for him. And I do feel really sorry for him. For him. What do you think happened I, there? You've been a Republican I, for a long time. You know the party, and you know the party now particularly. What is going on? Well, there's a, a lot of key differences between the way we do our business in the state legislature and the way the Congress does theirs. The Texas way works. The congressional way doesn't. Define the and Texas hasn't way. It for a very long time. Define the Texas way. We hear a lot well, about the, te the Texas way broadly, but be specific. In the, in the Texas House, um, we have a large, larger majority, um, 98 Republicans. 98-52 as we sit here. 98-52. Right. And on those occasions where there's, you know, a few who are out kind of agitated, yep. who don't think we're doing enough or fast enough or good enough, um, they're the tail, not the dog. And in Washington, they allow the tail to wag the dog. Right, their numbers That's, are not great. Mr. Speaker, the Freedom Caucus in the U.S. House, I think, is 40 members. 40, got out, two, 40 out of 247. 247. In theory, the Speaker, any Speaker, could say to the Freedom Caucus, enough of this, be gone. But in fact, the 40 have really been leading the majority, practically speaking, instead of the remaining 207. Well, there's a lot of things that they do that 
wouldn't work here. How, how have you avoided think, letting your group lead well, first, this lead? it's more, more structural than yeah. even, even the inter, uh, party, intra-party thing. In Texas, we, we serve 140 days in a session every other year. Right. In Congress, they're there day in and day out, except when they're out raising money, which is probably a majority of the time. All the time, it seems. Um, it's perpetual. And, they've, and they have, I, I feel sorry for members of Congress when I've been to Washington to visit with them. There's some very, very good people there. Yep. Uh, but it's almost as if they, they bang their own heads against the wall. They can't get anything done. Yep. Texas is just the opposite. We're here for 140 limited days. We have to pass a balanced budget. Right. In and fact, the, it's the only thing you have to do is pass a balanced budget. And we're not divided by aisle here. You're not. We're not divided by aisle. And you see, and you see Republicans and Democrats physically sitting next to each other on the floor of the House. Right. Um, we invite everybody to the table. Do you think Republicans and Democrats get along better and work better in Texas than they do in Washington? Well, I, I know they do. I know we do. Does the House and the Senate work better here than the House and the Senate does in Washington? Well, look at the results. The results are a balanced budget, a state that's been doing very well, um, a legislative process that works. Right. We've been able to solve some of our biggest challenges in this really fast-growing state in infrastructure and water. We have a lot more to do in education, but we've made some good policy um, improvements in education. Right. So we're, we're getting the job done here. People are generally happy in Texas, and not just because the legislature works, yep. but it's a big part of it, I think. And we work, we work together. My, my rules, the fundamental rules of the House, and I think the reason I've been reelected as Speaker is really simple, and it applies to all the members of both parties. One, represent your districts and your constituents faithfully. Two, work together. And three, solve problems. It's really pretty simple. And if you do those things, everything else takes care of itself. Should. So you're sympathetic to Speaker Boehner. He obviously wants to get out, and maybe if you were he or I were he, I might want to get out. You might want to get out. But you don't want to get out. You want to be Speaker again. Why do you want to be Speaker again? Well, we have a good thing going here. There's a lot more to do. Um, I like where the House is today. When I was first elected Speaker a few years ago, uh, we had a very closely divided House. It was 76-74. Right. Today, it's this very large Republican majority. N near near the, the highest number of Republicans. Near. Close. Yeah. Close. And, um, and we're doing good things. We're doing them the right way. And, um, you know, there's, since I was elected Speaker, there's 102 members who weren't there that day. Right, you have extraordinary turnover. We've had a lot of we've had years. a lot of turnover, and I always hate it when my old friends leave, but I've been very very pleased with the talent level, uh, the enthusiasm, the new ideas, right, uh, of the new members, and I I just like where we are. I like doing this job. Yep. And um, I think we have a lot more challenges to solve. So you allude that. to the job that still is to be done, uh, and typically in an interim we look to interim charges as a telegraph. <clears throat> of what, those, uh, what that job might be. So the Lieutenant Governor, I wasn't aware of this until he said it to me, said it this week, that he released the Senate's interim charges much earlier than the Senate typically receives them. He said it might be as much as six months early. So it's not that, I wonder, well, is the Speaker late? Because he hasn't released his. No, the Lieutenant Governor is early. But he's released his interim charges, some 91 inter interim charges. Have you had an opportunity to consider what he's released? I've only read the news accounts, some right. of them last week as they dribbled them out over 
week or 10 days. You have a reaction. Does it seem to you, based on what you know, to be standard operating procedure, anything that stands out as noteworthy, anything missing? Oh, I don't really intend to comment too much on what the Senate's going to do. Really? We're going to pay, we're going to pay uh, attention to what we're going this to do. This will not you'll be probably, the only time I try to get you to comment on you'll the probably, Senate. Spoiler, you'll, but. you'll probably see some familiar themes when we come out with ours. And we're for pretty far along in our interim, char interim charges. And our process in the House is a, is a bottom-up process. Right. The members you know, will recommend uh, to my office some, some areas they want to look at. Yep. Of course, we'll add some more in, too. Uh, but we're getting pretty close to releasing them. I want to talk about uh, some specific issues that may or may not be on that list. And regardless of whether they're on that list, I want to ask you about them anyway. But I want to ask you about the 2016 election cycle and whether it in any way complicates your plans for the House. You're at 98.52. Even if Democratic turnout is extraordinary, even if Hillary Clinton runs against Jose Bautista for president, <laughs> Democrats are not going to win this state. Democratic turnout is not going to be enough that it's going to knock out a bunch of your guys, but you may lose a couple Republicans just in a presidential year. But the numbers are going to basically be what they are. So given the fact that the math is going to be relatively the same, it all comes down to composition. Are you expecting the composition of the House to be materially different within your party, within the 98 or 95? No, I don't. You don't think I, there I are going to be more grassroots guys coming in to replace some of the folks who are leaving? Grassroots guys, <clears throat> by definition, you have to be a grassroots guy to get elected to the House. Right, but you know there are grassroots guys <coughs> and there are grassroots guys, Mr. Speaker. <laughs> well, you know that. I'm talking about the kind of people who might vote against you in a speaker's race. I think who might seek I think to of put grass the agenda to the right. Well, I think of grassroots guys as being people who go door to door, people who stay in contact with the people they represent, um, and that's how you get elected to the House. I have to do the same thing. Right. I have challengers. So Byron Cook's Byron Cook's a grassroots guy. I think he'll have to be if he's going to be reelected. Jason yes. Vialba is a grassroots guy. They're going to have to get out and work their neighbors. Are yeah. you a grassroots guy, Mr. Speaker? Yes. I've been a precinct chairman before I was in elected office. Yeah. You, you mentioned, I mentioned, and then you uh, said something again about the challenge that you have in the primary. Two people are seeking to run against you. The, the theory here seems to be you're not conservative enough. Whether they've said it, others have said it. And that's been the knock against you, an unsuccessful knock in terms of how they've been able to get at you, but a knock nonetheless. Are you a conservative, Mr. Speaker? Yes. Explain why you are. Look at the results of the Texas House since I've been Speaker. Balanced budgets, tax cuts, good conservative reforms. Our Governor Abbott, who has um, never been accused of being anything other than a conservative, called this last. He was accused by a couple of people after the session of not being conservative enough. He called, he called this last session the most conservative in our history. Yeah. So the results speak for themselves. I just, I'm not a guy that gets out there and, and um, talks too much. And I, I um, you know, I listen to the, to the members. I have to have a pretty good sense of the pulse of where they are. Right. And um, I feel like we have a very good thing going in the House. We're, we're not interested in labels. We're interested in results. But I don't think you could view the results of the Texas House in the last several sessions as anything other than conservative. I think even if you're, you don't like to talk very much, you are self-reflective. So I'm sure you've considered this. What is it about you that they don't like? If you're conservative, as you say, what is it about you that they don't like? Well, I think that particular faction and that small group of people out there want somebody they can control. They want somebody they can hand a list to and say, here's what you're going to do. Right. And I don't work that way. I work for the constituents in District 121. Yes. 
and I represent the, the confidence and the, and the uh, support of the members of the Texas House. So it's your not independence. Out, not outside groups that yeah. seek to have control over an agenda. It's your independence that they have a problem with. Yeah. I've been around the Capitol for, as a journalist for more than 20 years. I've never seen the, quote, outside groups have as much of a seat at the table as they do now. What happened? How'd this happen? Which outside groups? Well, I mean, well, outside, well, everybody has, an, everybody has a, a right to participate. But the folks you're talking about, the folks you're talking about who have become the loudest critics of House leadership, of you personally, um, these but, people, how'd they get in? How'd they get in the building? How'd they, how did they well, everybody, become? Everybody has a right Mr. Speaker. to participate. Mr. Speaker. And, but, Mr. But, Speaker. Uh, but I think it's, I think it's, I think it's the obligation of those of us in, in public office to know the difference between those who are trying to control you, those who are trying to threaten you into seeing things their way, right. um, and those who are there to petition the government. And, um, you know, those who, I don't think that particular group, I think we're talking about the same one, um, they haven't done terribly well. You mean in terms of the one loss record? Yeah. Both at the elect at elections and also from a policy. They want, it, they want control, and they don't have it, and they're not going to get it. And they're not going to get it if you're the speaker. Let me, um, you're letting your hair down, Mr. Speaker. <laughs> this is a new you. I've, we've done this enough. This is a new you. Um, uh, let me come at the question of the difference in the House from another angle. You're losing the chairman of public education. You're losing the chairman of appropriations to reduce both to retirement. You're losing the chairman of public health. You're losing the chairman of natural resources. You're losing the chairman of defense and veterans affairs. She's running for another office. You're losing the longtime vice chairman of appropriations. Mm -hmm. These are consequential positions. <clears throat> so you're going to have to overturn the mulch of leadership at the committee level again. Can you talk about what that is likely to do to the next session? Well, first, I would say that I don't want to lose my old friends who are leaving. Um, but it's natural. It, it happens. It, it occurs every session. Right. It happened last session. We had a big turnover. In, in you committee did. leadership and major committees. And in fact, some of the, you know, like Chairman Keffer, you know, you, Chairman Ritter was the chair of natural resources. He retired. Chairman Keffer came in, did one tour. Now you're going to have a third chair of natural resources. So if right. I'm in the community of people who cares about water policy, I, I, should I go, uh, it's like different people every time. I'm nervous, no stability. No, but what about that? No, I don't think, I th you know, I think um, you can also look back at, at certain chairmanships over time since I've served as speaker where <clears throat> where it didn't take a retirement for there to be a moving indeed, around of people. Indeed, you changed think, some people I think last that, time. I think, you know, I kind of, how do I put this without getting myself in more trouble? Oh, get in how trouble. About, Come on, um, go ahead. I, Say it however you want. I kind of like the idea of not letting the lobby know in advance who's going to be where. Right? <laughs> how about journalists? Y'all are on your own. Here, here's the thing. Everybody who's a lobbyist, get the hell out. We're going to talk about this. And then he'll tell me what's up. So you're not going to tell me. OK. Um, uh, let me ask you about some specific issues that might be floating around in your mind. They may show up as interim charges, or they may not. Some of them are off of what the lieutenant governor did. Some of them are just things that I think are out in the air. Okay. My memory of the conversation about taxes last session, Mr. Speaker, was that the House wanted to cut the franchise tax, and the Senate wanted to cut the franchise tax. 
Senate mm. wanted to cut the property tax, which is actually an inaccurate way of saying it because there's no statewide property tax, but they wanted the result to be a reduction in property taxes. And Chairman Bonin, shy, retiring, no opinions, <laughs> he wanted to cut the sales tax. Ultimately, the property tax got cut. I'm not sure Chairman Bonin was thrilled about that at the end, but he was a good sport about it. Lieutenant Governor's come back and said, we're not done on property taxes. We need to come back and look at property taxes again. How do you feel about that? How will Chairman Bonin feel about that? Well, I feel overall pretty good about the tax cut package that we passed. Um, the House did focus on the margins tax. Right. And uh, we managed to um, make a significant cut in it, 25%. Right. That's good. And Chairman Bonin did an excellent job of negotiating that. Now, the Lieutenant Governor would like to see, by the way, I'll come back to property taxes in a second, he'd like to see the franchise tax go away completely. Yeah, I'd like would, a lot of things. I'd like would, to be we six would like eight, that. We know? would like that, too. Right. But, but you understand that that's, what is that, uh, uh, people in the audience will correct me if I get this wrong, is that $6 billion that would go away from the state budget if the franchise tax disappeared completely? I'm, I don't have Some the, large I don't have the number. number, but it's not inconsequential. No. But the fact that we could cut it 25% in one session was... Was tremendous. Are you worried well, we won't have, if we get rid of the franchise tax completely, there won't be enough money in the state budget to do all we need to do in a fast-growing state? We'll make, we'll make the prudent decision. we come back into the session and see where we are uh, in, our, in our fiscal uh, condition. You notice the comptroller just made a revision downward well, he did. Uh, last week. So it's, it's a long way to the revenue estimate that we'll see when we come in at 17. Well, in fact, wiseacres like me, after you all passed the budget you passed, said, well, look, they left all this money on the table. We have all these needs. State's growing fast. Why didn't you put more money into transportation? Why didn't you put more money into public ed? Well, now we find out we actually had less than we thought. You were probably right. Wiseacres were probably not right. We, we had this discussion along the way during the session. By the way, the comptroller's doing a very, very good job. Um, I'm Telling hard truths. He's telling hard truths. He, he's, right. he, he shoots straight with you. Um, he does his job and doesn't try to do everybody else's. And he's not being political. Well, I'm sure he's a good politician. He's been but, in the House and the Senate, and he got elected to the but, statewide office. But he's doing his yeah. job, and he's, and he's calling, calling it straight. Right. We had conversations during the session about the drop in, in, um, in oil prices and the potential effect on our budget that we were writing. Yep. We all knew that it was a, a drastic drop in price can have some impact. But at the time, and in fairness to him, he said, I, I don't have the evidence yet to make any um, revisions. Well, now he does have some evidence, and he's done so. And I think he's doing a very good job. And because we had those conversations, and because we could all see the obvious coming, right. we did leave some money aside. And so I'm glad, being, being glad we did. turned out to be the right course. It's on always the right on course so when you're dealing with other people's money. Do we want to cut property taxes more somehow monkey with appraisals or whatever means that the legislature has at its disposal against if there's no statewide property tax? Is that going to be a priority of yours and of the houses going into the next session? Well, sure. It's a property taxes are are the number one irritant of our taxpayers. Well, it's they're the a biggest, crowd pleaser election time, that's for sure. Well, it's yeah, but I, I don't, I try not to I try not to go too far at the state level in making promises that we can make that, that we can fix that problem. Because these are local taxes, as you, right. as you astutely observed. Yeah. These are local taxes, and the first thing that our citizens and constituents need to do is go home to the local taxing entities, if they're upset, and petition them. Talk to them. Yeah. That's now, it. we do what we can up here, right. um, but it's, it's right. not the place to fix the problem. Right. Item number one, if not literally, then spiritually, on the lieutenant governor's interim charges was school choice. 
He wants to come back around and relook at the question of, of school choice. A couple times the Senate has been interested in school choice, this last time with some money attached to it. School choice was lobbed over the wall to the, uh, 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 to the House, and like a shuttlecock, it was sent back over. The House had no interest in that landing on its lawn. Um, Part of that, I think, I suspect, I'm going to say with some knowledge, that you had a chairman of public education from Colleen who was not particularly interested in uh, uh, choice. You had a chairman of appropriations from Dayton who was not particularly interested in choice. Both of them are leaving. Is the House going to be any more favorably disposed to school choice, whether it's business scholarships, outright vouchers, whatever, than it has been in the previous sessions? Well, we've been, we've been for school choice in terms of lifting the cap on high-performing charter schools. Right, but that's not what he wants. Well, it's what he wants, plus. It's not all he wants. And, but I think there's, I think um, to overlook the fact that we've been strongly for school choice in certain ways is important to, to say. Um, on the issue of vouchers, um, it isn't just those two chairmen. Oh, I know. Two sessions ago, there was, there was a vote on the floor that I think was two to one against. I thought that the, it failed by 60 votes. It was like an amendment or something. It was an, right. it was an offline was a, it vote, was a, it was like 60 votes. It was a symbolic vote, but it was very telling, I think. Right. This session, <clears throat> I was um, approached by, um, by advocates for, for vouchers. Yep. I was approached and, and urged to do whatever I could to keep a vote from occurring on the floor to avoid embarrassment like they had the session before. Right. I did try to help. And there wasn't that vote, right? Uh, but I, you know, I have to stay in touch with the pulse of the members, right? Um, and I don't think the votes were there uh, for that. The votes were there, however. This isn't a choice issue, but the votes were there for some very good work that Chairman Acock did on school finance in this last session. Right. We'll come to that. Yeah. But I want to come back on the school choice thing. So, are you telling me that if we go into a house that is not materially different, either in the RD breakdown or in the RR breakdown? You go into a house that is not materially different. Is the outcome of a discussion of vouchers or business scholarships, what have you, likely to be any different next time than this time? I'm not saying that at all, and I don't want to prejudge that. Um, I think a lot. I want of you to prejudge. I think, a, I think a lot of members. I think a lot of members have an open mind, and details matter. So we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens, but there's going right. to be also most likely this larger context of of having to deal with the school finance system. Right. So I would say a lot of policy issues are in the mix. Going forward. So you've mentioned school finance twice. Let me take the bait. What if the Supreme Court comes back and upholds Judge Dietz? And you guys are on the hook for $10 billion a year or $20 billion a biennium, let's say, in public education funding all of a sudden. You can scrape all the waste, fraud, and abuse out of the state budget in the world. You're going to have to pass a tax bill, aren't you? <laughs> How are you going to find that money? We'll, we'll Who said don't answer? We will. I know it wasn't for price, but it may have been some other <laughs> member over there. How are you going to pass I, the tax bill? And well, how are you going to find that we're, money? We're way, way too early to worry about that. Oh, please um, I don't know what I don't know what the judge is going to do. I don't know what the Supreme Court. I don't. I don't know where this thing ends up. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a lawyer. Budget, but do you have the money in the budget now to meet whatever the need would be if they uphold? I mean, we're not at a point where this is really crazy because they're either going to uphold or they're not. We'll do what we have to do, but I'm not sure um, at this point what that is. Nobody is. Do you take having some, to pass some, it? some people yeah. think just the opposite is going to happen, and that and that the Supreme Court's going to see things much differently Bust than the judge, judge did. completely. Yeah. Or would you take passing a tax bill off the table if the if the price tag were ten or twenty billion dollars a biennium? I'm not I'm I'm not uh, going to go there. I'm going to take this man's advice, yeah. and not and not answer me. Uh, Mr. Speaker, there were a lot of issues that saw some forward progress last session. There's general consensus that ethics saw backwards progress. Mm -hmm. 
I need to ask you a question about um, why in 2015 the Texas legislature will not digitize the personal financial disclosure forms that the 181 members are obligated to file with the Ethics Commission. I mean, it's like you guys want us to go to microfiche to look at this stuff. <laughs> your constituents ought to have a right to see how you make your money back home since uh -huh. it's a part-time legislature, but every time the two years comes around, you guys seem to vote against transparency. What's going on here? Well, we should. We you should think do you that. should? Yes. So why is there no support in the House for this? I don't know what the support looks like in the House for that, but I, I think we should. Should you? Should you disclose dark money? the sources of dark money. Your preferred candidate for president, Jeb Bush, I'm told, is coming out in favor of the disclosure of dark money. You like Jeb Bush. Why don't you get on board with him on that? I'm on board with him. Um, on board I, with him for I the believe, race or for dark money? Well, I don't know what he said about that, but I, my, I'm not a campaign finance expert. But I, my fundamental belief is that a better system than what we have is for there to be unlimited contributions and immediate disclosure of them. Right. And that would be direct contributions and also contributions to these outside groups? A anything. Anything that's, anything that's involved in, in trying to impact an election right. uh, that's political, I think um, there ought to be unlimited contributions, immediate and full disclosure. So, Mr. Let, Speaker, let the, people, yeah. let the people decide whether they're being manipulated or who's trying to do it or whatever. I hear that and I say Joe Strauss has now come out for the disclosure of dark money. Am I wrong? I've always had this view. Okay, good. But, but the, you know, it's, it's, more, it's more complicated than that, I will admit. Yeah. Um, and all these, all these machinations that happen in Washington to try to get money out of politics and these limits and all this stuff doesn't work. You're never going to get money out of politics. But as long as you disclose, peace. I'm fine with, I'm fine with no limits and full disclosure. That's my personal view. I don't know how, how others feel about On it. On the lieutenant governor's list of interim charges is to relook at economic incentives. I remembered back, I confirmed with him last night, that back during the campaign for lieutenant governor, his position on economic incentives, the enterprise fund and other mm -hmm. funds that were used to attract businesses to the state, Governor Perry's favorite activity in those last few years. His he, position, was good, he was good at it, he too. He was very good at it. His position was on economic incentives, end them, don't mend them. Maybe they're off uh, the rails a little bit in terms of what we're expecting and asking of people and all that. Rather than fixing them, get rid of them. Hell, Wendy Davis wasn't for getting rid of them. The lieutenant governor was for getting rid of them. We didn't get rid of them. I talked to Elon Musk of Tesla and SpaceX earlier this year about the facility he located in Brownsville. He's got all the money in the world, right? Why would he need a pittance from the state? He said, had Texas not given me an incentive, we would not have come. We need skin in the game from the state. The CEO of Toyota a couple weeks ago said to me, we're doing this deal in Plano. We got an economic incentive. No economic incentive. We wouldn't have come. We need skin in the game. Lieutenant Governor told me yesterday, get rid of economic incentives. Where are you on this? I'm with the CEOs. I want them to keep coming here. Um, <clears throat> but I think um, in fairness, um, and I would give a lot of credit to Angie Chin Button and the members of her committee, we've, we've added some transparency to our economic incentive programs that we do have. And um, we ended the, the, um, the enterprise, I mean the uh, Emerging Technology Fund. You did. Um, because it had some problems, and I think that was the appropriate thing to do. But you still think these kind of funds matter and that the, I think some, and, and that the incentives matter? I think we should have the best, most useful, most, um, most impactful incentive programs that we can have. Yep. It doesn't mean we have to throw gobs of money at it. 
um, but we better be as sharp as the next best state right. in attracting business and jobs to Texas. So to those who might say, say, grassroots conservatives in the Texas Senate, thinking of at least one very specifically, this is corporate welfare. Why is the state engaged in corporate welfare? What I, do you I, say? Well, I, I get that argument, and I'm not, I'm not defending the enterprise fund. Right. What I am saying is that we can't just say, well, we're not going to be in the business of trying to attract companies and jobs here. Right. We've got to find the best way to do it. And if it's not the enterprise fund, let's replace it with something else. Something else that would solve, do, the yes. same, do the same trick. Right. Right. Uh, Mr. Speaker, let me ask you about guns. Slightly less controversial than economic incentives in some quarters. Um, <laughs> I don't think they would work as, as, a, way to as an incentive business? to bring no, people in. Fact, here, in, in fact, some, some suggest that open carry will ultimately have the opposite effect, but we'll come back to that in a second. So I doubt that. I looked back on, I looked back on, the, uh, on the day that the Oregon shooting occurred, <clears throat> the college campus in Oregon. Mm -hmm. It was the 275th calendar day of the year. It was the 294th mass shooting of the year, mass shooting defined as three victims or more. 30,000-odd gun deaths in this country a year. On January 1st, we are looking to be the state with the largest big cities in the country with open carry. In the other states that have passed open carry, the big cities <clears throat> all had a legislative opt-out, which we chose not to give our big cities. So mm -hmm. Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, Austin will be the biggest cities in the country without, with, 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 with open carry. Does the news of late, I mean, I think we had three school shootings on the same day last week, one in Texas. Give you any pause at all about what the legislature has done and is fixing to make the law of the state on, on January 1st? First of all, I didn't, <clears throat> I wasn't educated on open carry generally when we came into the session. I didn't realize that we were in the minority of states that didn't already have Only it. Only six. God knows Massachusetts. I mean, I, the Satan of states had open carry. I don't know how I didn't, I don't know how I did not know that, but right, I did, not, did not know that. Right. Um, so I think the consequences of passing that bill may, are probably over. Do we, do we have a gun problem in this country? Do we have a gun problem in this state? Are there things that even in a Second Amendment state piece that we should be doing to we address have, any of this at yeah, all? Yeah, we, we have a crime and a mental health problem. And um, on the mental health side, um, one area that I can tell you to expect in our interim charges is going to include, include more of a focus on mental health. And uh, we did some very good work for prices here. Yes. <clears throat> Representative Price here did, with other members, did a very, very good job of making mental health a very serious priority in the House. More money in each of the last two sessions. A lot more money, right. and, uh, but more than just money, I think we need to look at processes and look at um, not chopping up mental health into, into various areas and, and try to have a more holistic view of what needs to be done. It's so going to be amazing. It, so come be at it from that end. Very much so, yes. Okay. Let me ask you about campus carry. Here we are on a college campus. I said to the lieutenant governor last night that I had seen a petition that had 300 UT faculty members' names on it, including some big names you'd recognize, uh, objecting to the fact that there were going to be guns in their classrooms. I was corrected last night. It's actually more than 700 UT faculty members. Uh, they say people who want campus carry say they have a right to have a gun on campus because they want to protect themselves. The faculty members say, we want to protect ourselves. That's why we don't want guns in our classroom. What is your message to faculty here, faculty in your hometown of San Antonio, faculty everywhere, and others on campuses who think that this is going to make it more dangerous and not less dangerous? My message would be for them to go talk to the president of their campus, <clears throat> to whom we gave a lot of authority and flexibility to, to um, design a program that will work for their individual 
um, school. Right, but the problem, Mr. Speaker, is they don't, it's not that they don't want guns in certain areas. They don't want guns in their own mm. classrooms. I had a faculty member write me and say, is it okay? Do you know if it's okay? Of course, I don't know the answer to this. Is it okay if I, if I tell my class, rather than meeting on campus, we're going to meet in the common room of my apartment complex <laughs> so that I don't have to have a gun in the, I mean, of course, that's not literally the case, open carry, fine. But the point on this is that there's anxiety enough to the, it's risen to a, a, a fever a pitch. The lieutenant governor said last night, and I asked him about this, I said, you know, like county clerks who don't want to issue same-sex marriage licenses, fo follow the law or quit, should the position to these faculty members be follow the law or quit? He said yes. Do you think that should be their, the position? No, follow the law no, or quit? No, I think they ought to use their influence with their campus president and try to design a plan within the law that works. And John Sharp said during the debate of this bill that um, A&M and schools weren't prohibited from having guns on campus before this Previously, law passed. Previously, right. <clears throat> John Sharp said at A&M, we love guns. It works great. Bring them on. Yep. Um, other campuses will probably feel the same way. Some's, some will want some restrictions and some will want more restrictions than others. Let's see what right. the plans um, under this flexible right. um, regime look like. Mr. Speaker, I, I, am, I am mystified at the fact, surprised at the fact that the campus carry law is set to take effect on August 1st, 2016 to the day, the 50th anniversary of the Charles Whitman shooting on this campus. I keep thinking that had to be a deliberate decision, and if it's not a deliberate decision, how did, how are the optics of that missed? Do you know if that was a, a conversation in the building? Well, I don't know that, um, I don't know that we ever look at a certain date that a law becomes effective and look what happened to that day in history. So it's just- I did read the paper this morning and notice that today was the, is the anniversary of the San Francisco earthquake. Well, that's true. And, and um, Al Capone went to prison on this day. Right. In the past, but I mean, I th things. I think, I think campus carry opponents may be a little less concerned about that anniversary than the, um, all right, well, let me, let me, let me keep moving. Um, <laughs> Lieutenant Governor put in his interim charges uh, more study of religious liberty. Legislature passed a pastor protection bill anticipating the same-sex marriage ruling of the Supreme Court last session. He believes there's more to be done in the area of religious liberty. Do you? Well, if, some, if a member comes to me with some evidence of an infringement on religious liberty, we'd take a look. Are you aware of any situation. infringements that need to be uninfringed? No one's brought anything to me. Nobody's brought anything to me lately. Yeah. Um, but you talked about the Pastor Protection Act. That was an example of, um, <clears throat> of working a bill dealing with religious liberty in the right way. It was collaborative, a collaborative process, and it, people were thoughtful and deliberate in working through it, and it ended up passing overwhelmingly. Right. So you're not saying there shouldn't be work done in this issue further, but you're not aware of no. any pressing need to I'm get I'm saying that this. we would certainly keep an open mind to whatever right. um, somebody wants to, wants to uh, talk about in terms of infringement, infringement of somebody's religious liberties. It's very important to protect people's right to worship right. um, and their freedom of religion. Um, Mr. Speaker, there are people who believe that the conversation actually has two sides to it, that there's a, we ought to be respecting and, and protecting the concerns and rights of people of faith, but that there ought to be some limit along the continuum about how much faith is in our politics and how much discussion of faith or how much faith drives mm -hmm. our, our politics. Uh, we at the Tribune did a series of interviews with legislators that became a documentary posted last week called God and Governing, in which we explored this, we did not have an opportunity to sit down with you and ask you about 
whether we've gone a little far in introducing conversations mm. about faith into politics or whether we're exactly where we ought to be. I wonder if you would offer your perspective on that. It seems as if, especially during this last session, and members of both parties agreed, there was more discussion of faith as a driver of policymaking, both a defense of policymaking and an aff affirmation of the rationale for policymaking than people had seen in, in previous sessions. Mm. What, what do you think about this topic? Well, I think discussions of faith in the public arena are appropriate. Um, you need to be careful um, when you're passing legislation as a result that you're not trampling on somebody else's rights. Right. Um, but I think the discussions of is certainly appropriate and, and, and good. What would qualify on trampling on somebody else's rights? Well, the Pastor Protection Act is one that didn't. Well, the Pastor Protection Act sought to be sure, the Pastor Protection Act sought to ensure that people's rights were not trampled on. It was an right. affirmative. Yeah, but right. but give me, can you give me an example of, of, of something that might happen in the Capitol where you would think this might be too, going too far in the direction of, of, uh, of trampling on somebody's rights? No, but if, if somebody does want to go too far, I'm sure it, th through a deliberative process, we would make that determination. That you have to be very yeah. careful when you're talking about um, religious liberty um, and a lot of, you know, there's going to be a lot of arguments on various sides of these, of these um, sometimes emotional, always heartfelt issues. So just be careful. Treat each other with respect and dignity. I liked what the, what the Pope said in his joint address to, to Congress. Would the Pope get through a primary here in Texas? Well, which one? Um, I he, think he'd he, get through um, a Democratic primary. He, um, you know, he talked about the golden rule. Yeah. And, um, Right. People, people in that joint session that day seemed to be paying attention right. to it. Dur during didn't, our, didn't, yeah. didn't last long. During our series of interviews, uh, a, a couple of different members alluded to, but the lieutenant governor said directly, this is a Christian nation, in talking about why it was important for conversations about faith to, uh, to be part of our political mm -hmm. and policymaking apparatus. This is a Christian nation. Do you agree with that? Well, I think the Christian re religion has certainly had great influence in right. this nation and continues to today. Um, I think um, it's pretty clear in our Constitution that there is not the establishment of one religion. Right. What about a Christian state? Is this a Christian state? It's a majority. It's inhabited by a majority of Christians. Right, but for those who are not in the majority, if people believe, as the Lieutenant Governor said last night, and he is hardly the only one, this is a Christian state, and that should be a frame around much of the work that we do and a, and a defense of the decision to introduce conversations about faith into mm -hmm. policymaking, what happens to those people who are not Christian? Mr. Speaker, you're a Jew. I'm a Jew. Does it make you uncomfortable at all when you hear discussions of this being a Christian state? In fact, somebody has said, a couple of years ago on the state Republican Executive Committee. This is a Christian state. We should have a Christian speaker. That was directed specifically at you. Do you feel in yeah. any way as a Jew put off by conversations that frame this as a Christian state or a Christian nation? Well, one person at a convention saying something stupid uh, res <laughs> resulted, resulted in, a, I think, an election was 100 and, 150 right. to 0. But I'm trying. This is where you not wanting to talk is going to be a problem for me. But I want you, I want you Look, to reflect I, on, I want you to reflect yeah, on whether think, you feel like we have a problem. Is the calibration of this a problem or not? It isn't if people are careful and they do what the Pope said. That's respect the golden rule. Treat other right. people as you would want to be treated. So if somebody has an issue with having a Jewish speaker that or a Muslim, that or a Muslim all, speaker, all religions. 
any, anybody of any faith should feel comfortable in the policymaking process that this is their state and that they have every opportunity to have their... As long, uh, as, as, long as we're uh, faithful to the United States Constitution, that's the way it's going to be. That is your guide, the Constitution. Well, it's a, it's a pretty important document, yes. It is. In, in, so, in some circles, it definitely and when you're is. Serving in government, yes. When you're serving in government, you um, right. swear an oath to uphold it. That's right. Let me talk, speaking of Washington and, and, and the Constitution and all that, so you all don't much like the federal government these days, do you? Not currently, no. No. We're hoping, though, a year from now there'll be an election that we'll like a lot better. So when, so when if a Republican, that's fine, clap. Those are the same people I bust in for Westlake last night, right? That's it. Um, so should a Republican, Jeb Bush or any other Republican, be elected president, you're suddenly going to bear hug Washington? I would predict a much, much, much better relationship, yes. Are you going to let Washington have any more of a conversation with you about stuff here if a Republican's in the White House than you do now? I think we would be on the same page. I think that would be, I think discussions would be welcome. So it won't be that suddenly you like the mandates from Washington because they're Republican mandates. It's that the whole nature of the conversation would shift. I think that there would be fewer mandates. You think there would be fewer mandates. Is the problem the wrong strings or any strings? I think the problem is too much top-down management. Too much top-down. Yeah, and I, think, and I think a Republican president would um, want to reverse that. They'd want to empower the states to, right. to, um, to be better players. Right. Yeah. Conveniently, I didn't plan this, but conveniently, Nelda Martinez, the mayor of Corpus Christi, no, is sitting is. in Hi. the front row. Please look directly at Mayor Martinez and tell her why, when the feds mandate to the states, that's bad, but when the state mandates to the cities, that's okay. <laughs> Because honestly, Mr. Speaker, the, the, the tension point in this session was we like local control, we just don't like it when you locals control. Well, I'll let, so mayor, was, I'll let the mayor speak for no, herself. No, 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 no. She's uh, So whether it was bag bans or fracking bans or whatever else, there did yeah. seem to be an effort on the part of the <clears> legislature to say to cities, we're going to tell you what to do. And it seemed to me weird given the fact that you hate it when the feds tell you what to do. Can you help well, on me the fracking, that? I think the fracking ban is a very good example of how to, how to um, manage through a difficult issue um, that does relate to city, local, uh, municipal government. And um, Chairman Darby did a very, very good job. He yeah. was, he was um, careful only to isolate the really bad actors who had created this issue for us. Um, he didn't go in there and trample every, every city and every stakeholder. But you understand, Mr. Speaker, a lot of mayors and a lot of cities, city officials, looked at the work of this session and thought, the state is kind of up in our business in a way that they don't seem to like it when the Fed's up in their business. I'm just asking, do we have a, a, a problem here? Is the balance between the state? Because honestly, your strings are no more a, 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 attractive to them than the Fed's strings are to you. Well, Is the relationship different? I Am think, I missing something? Well, I think you're missing the sense of proportion here to equate how the federal government treats the state of Texas to the way the state of Texas treats our municipalities is a pretty big stretch. Do you, um, do you feel like they have any, any reasonable claim on, on self-governance or self-determination in the way that well, sure, the 10th Amendment sure, becomes our spirit animal and all this yeah, conversation yeah, no, I, about the No, I, I mean, I get, I get the point, and I know, <laughs> I get the point and, I, and I know that during the session, the mayors are here a lot, making themselves heard. They are. And um, I don't think 
I don't think the states trampled local municipal government. You don't think so? No. Okay, well, I'll, I'll ask them offline if they think that as well. <laughs> um, let me ask you, uh, we're going to go to questions from the audience here shortly. We have mics set up, and I want to encourage, please, no speeches. Be respectful of the speaker. Ask your question. Don't Golden make a rule. Golden Remember. rule, right. The Pope, P.S., the Pope, right, uh, on the questions. Okay. Um, I want to ask you about voter turnout. This is a particular interest of mine I mentioned before you came out. We have the worst voter turnout Texas does of the last three election cycles of any state in the country. We like to brag about how awesome we are. That's not particularly awesome, at least I think it's something that would be nice if we could get more people to play whatever side they play on in this process. 27 million Texans, roughly, I'm looking at Murdoch, I hope I have these numbers right. 27 million Texans, 19 million adults, 14 million registered to vote, fewer than 5 million voted in the general, fewer than 2 million voted in the primary. Admittedly, this is an off-year election. This is in 2014. Um, and the primary really matters because we don't have competitive elections in Texas. The primary is the general for all practical purposes. So the real voter turnout of Texas is arguably less than 10%. Is this okay? Do we not want to try to come up with a way to, I mean, without, take sharp objects off the table, fine. But is there, is there something we can do? Or are we just destined to have such bad civic participation? It's not okay. It's not good. Um, and it's a real, it's a real problem for, um, for our state to be so civically unengaged. Um, the Annette Strauss Institute here, no relation, at the University of Texas has been trying to do some good work in this area to encourage more people to participate. Yep. Not just by voting, but, but to participate in public affairs in a number of ways. Um, to have an engaged citizenry is critical. It also would help if we had political candidates who were reaching out to more people. Right. to give them more incentive to come out and but, vote. But of course, Mr. Speaker, there's one theory here that redistricting has killed democracy in the state, and that's on you guys. You know, the, 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 the fact is that the, competitive, the competitiveness of elections has plummeted, and that voters go, the game is rigged. Why do I even bother to vote? If I don't agree with the person in office, I, I, it doesn't matter. I mean, this is all, how many competitive elections are there in the House, in the, in the Texas House? Literally competitive, fewer than 10? 36 congressional districts, the San Antonio district is the only one that's even mildly competitive. People don't show up to vote. It's hard to blame them under the current system. I bet the presidential election will bring some people out. But still not enough. But not, but not enough. So are there, is there anything that you guys can do on this? Is there anything of a, a nonpartisan way that the legislature can do to create means for more people to register or more people to be encouraged to turn in? I don't know that registration is the biggest problem. If it is, we ought to address it somehow. But I think just encouraging participation. Maybe we should look at other states to see what they're doing, if they're doing better than we are. Well, let me look at another state. California okay. last week, the other great Satan of states. California last week signed into law, Governor Brown signed into law, an, a motor voter, is it motor voter technically, where you go to sign up at the DMV for your driver's license and you're automatically registered to vote. If, if, you know, it, people kill other people more with cars than they do at the voting booth. So it seems to me that the real, if we're okay with them getting driver's licenses, we ought to be okay with them being registered to vote. So why not do that? Do you really expect me to validate something that they're doing in California? Yes, I do. <laughs> I do. No. No, well, I mean, I'm, I'm in all sincerity, Speaker, what about that? What about something like that? What about online voter registration? We ought to look at it. I don't know. I don't, I don't have, I'm, don't not, have I'm not educated on it. I'm, you don't have a point of view. What I, what I think is more, um, more of a challenge is getting people who are registered um, to be motivated to come express their opinion at the polls, and especially in our primaries. 
Yep. I think the biggest problem is the one that you hit on, that, that three times as many people vote in November as they do in the primary. Right. Smaller turnout tends to be more base turnout, and so the edges of the parties tend to have a disproportionate influence on the outcome of those elections. Uh, please line up. I'm going to ask one more question for the speaker, and then we'll be happy to bring you into the conversation. You're a Jeb Bush guy, unabashedly. How's that going? <laughs> well, I'm proud of him. I, um, I was asked by Brian Sweeney in an interview last November, almost a year ago. Never heard of him. If I was going to vote, if I was um, going to support Jeb if he runs, I said, absolutely, not even, a, not even a question for me. Right. I've been, that was six months or more before he announced. Right. Um, you know, we've been friends a long, long time. Yeah. Um, I have a lot of respect for his record as governor of California. I've been around Florida. him some, Florida. I mean, Florida. Uh, Florida. Okay. Okay. Maybe no California. That, that was um, president. We'll edit that, that out in post. That's that was fine. President okay. Reagan, I was thinking of. Yeah. Um, and, and he reminds me a lot of Reagan in many ways. He's very optimistic. Yeah. Um, he's very positive. He wants to build up this country. He wants to get us moving again. He wants pro-growth policies, very much like Reagan did. Look at some of the policy proposals he's put forward. Um, but it's not even a question for me. We're friends. I'm loyal to my friends. And, right. and, um, and I think it's really early in terms of where people are going to be when they start voting. Well, but it does matter in this respect. You're a Republican. You want a Republican to win so that all mm -hmm. those nasty mandates go away, right, in 2017. He would help uh, with that. He, he is not catching on, at least as of this point. Can you give us your theory of the race? What's going on here in your party? Um, well, I'm not a political pundit, but <clears throat> my opinion is that we're, that we're going through the, the um, entertainment phase of the race. It is entertaining. I will admit and that. For you, more more for you than the rest of us. But, it is entertaining. Um, <clears throat> I think this, this Trump thing is, you know, I think to have underestimated his experience as a television personality right. um, was something that I did. Um, but not any television. I mean, the Sabado Gigante guy is not going to get 20% in the polls. I mean, it's not any television guy. It's this guy. I mean, what is, what is it about what he's saying or the people with whom he's connecting that you think has upturned this primary? Well, he's focused, you know, he's, he's really not, he's not dominating. He's leading in the polls, but in the 20s. And I think he's been very effective at communicating to the more, to the angrier groups yep. who are frustrated. And I think it's a little bit cynical to be um, focusing just on that segment. Right. I think it'll come around and um, we'll nominate a good, strong candidate you who think can Jeb win in November. In at, you think Jeb will be in this by the I do. March primary here? Still, still hanging around. I do, yes. Yeah, okay. But good. and I, and I, you know, I'm very loyal to Jeb. I endorsed him six months before he said he was running. It's not to right. say that's not to say I'm not going to support the nominee of the party. Um, but I think I think we'll nominate nominate. Um, I think it'll be Jeb. Right. I think there's still a very good chance. You're of that. practically begging me to ask you, based on what you just said, if Donald Trump were to end up as the nominee of your party, <laughs> would you support him? I have always supported the nominee of the party. I also believe that we're going to nominate somebody who can win in November. Right, but you would support whoever it is. I always support the nominee of our party. Okay. Good. <laughs> You're a crafty one, Mr. Speaker. <laughs> uh, questions. Let's try to get as many in as we can. We have a limit on time. Please, again, no speeches. Be respectful, ma'am. Uh, sir, or I can't see. I'm sorry, sir. No worries. Hi. That hat I can't tell. Hello. Yes. <laughs> Um, uh, good day, Mr. Speaker. Um, my name is Anthony Devera. I'm with the Accent News with Austin Community College. Yes, sir. Um, today you spoke about the short time limit that the legislature has to pa in, in each session as well as voter turnout. Uh, 
do, in terms of the practice of ghost voting in the legislature, is there more value in the expediency of a call for a vote in the legislature over the presence of the representatives being able there to vote themselves? It's a bit of a down at the, uh, in the weed process. Yeah. Question, but well, let's see if we, can address we, we address the issue of members having their designated desk mate or whoever voting for them uh, a few sessions ago. And I don't, I don't think it's a problem the way we do things. Um, there's a process for it. We vote thousands of times, and not every, not every, uh, there's not a lot of notice given like there is in Congress for members to walk over from the office building or whatever to vote. Um, we vote literally thousands and thousands of times during a session. If a member has a, a problem with somebody who voted for them, who they gave permission to, to vote for them, um, there's ways to, to correct that. Okay, sir. Mr. Speaker, yeah. data has shown that when men and women have access to contraceptives and sex education, that we reduce STIs, teen pregnancy, and most importantly, abortions. Is there anything that the state is looking forward into doing, uh, pursuing these types of holistic sex education? Uh, I'm not sure what is currently on the It's abstinence or abstinence plus as it stands, and it hasn't worked. Well, you know, there was a big fight over abstinence uh, yeah. uh, funds th during the session, I believe Representative okay. Spitzer was in the middle of, of a, a very oh, right. entertaining conversation that yeah. happened on the floor. Uh, <laughs> look, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the speaker's question, I'm going to take I had to, I had to stop that conversation, as I recall, yes. Yeah. I'm going to frame the speaker's question. So you're pro, uh, you, you are, you are pro-life or pro-choice? I'm pro-life. You're pro-life. Mr. Speaker, one way I mean, to reduce... I mean, most, most people are. One way to reduce abortions is to limit the number of unwanted pregnancies, and one way to limit unwanted pregnancies is to provide access to sex education and contraception. Do you believe that should be part of the toolkit in terms of reducing abortion? I don't have a problem with, with careful sex education, um, provided parents are brought into the discussion, too. Okay. <laughs> Ma'am. Hi. My name is Caitlin Fortner. I'm a student at the University of Texas at Dallas. Yep. In my government class, we just started learning about the Evanwell v. Abbott case. And I'm curious as to how you think, if the state were able to district based on registered voters or eligible voters, how that would change the makeup and climate of the Texas legislature. I hate to say I have no idea, but oh. I have no idea. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Um, I'm, not, I'm not a lawyer. Um, so I, I really can't, can't answer that question. I'm sorry. Okay. Ma'am. Hi, Mr. Speaker. Um, I'm a young Republican, so I'm happy to talk offline about how to increase voter turnout there. Right. Um, but my question for you, I really appreciated the seriousness that the legislature dealt with the marijuana oil for epilepsy, and I wondered if y'all in 2017 might take the criminal penalties for marijuana as seriously as that uh, medical issue. This is a big conversation around the country, as you know. Yes. Other states. What should, we, what should we be doing on this? Uh, Representative Click's cannabis oil, cannabinoid oil uh, bill was the beginning, but didn't go past that. That was a, a very isolated medical right. use. Um, had nothing to do with recreational use of no. marijuana. Yeah. Um, or, or, or for that matter, even going as far as medicinal marijuana. True, that's yeah. right. Yeah. I mean, I think we ought to have the discussion. I'm, I'm very open-minded about policy issues. We generally... Um, are very conservative, not just on the philosophical side, but we're meticulous and conservative and careful not yep. to do anything crazy. But 
I don't have a problem with people filing bills and having a discussion, see what the merits are, see what other states are doing. I'm not so sure that Colorado and is it Washington State? Um, I'm not so sure DC, that those are. DC in some. I'm not. I'm not so this. sure that those are models for us, but um, we ought to talk about it. Should we be having a serious criminal justice policy conversation about decriminalization? We should have the conversation. Sure. Is that going to be an interim charge? I don't know specifically that it would be, but if members want to talk about it, there's nothing that prohibits them from doing so. Sir. Uh, how you doing, Mr. Speaker? Hi. I'm kind of tall, so I have to bend over a little Sorry. bit more. Um, no problems. <laughs> so my question kind of falls into criminal justice as well. Uh, I think one thing we've been talking about in 2015 is police brutality, especially in the state of Texas with the Sandra Bland case. So. Right. Uh, one thing that the state of Texas has done is supported the police officers in a lot of ways by making sure that we respect them and the way we talk to them and the way we communicate. But how do we support the citizen? How do we support right. these people by allowing uh, police brutality to not happen by using body cameras and reporting these arrests? Uh, would you, as Speaker, uh, be interested in listening to this conversation? Because I know Senator West and I think Representative Dutton kind of talked about it last session. Would you yourself be interested in talking about it by that session? I'd be very interested in talking about it. Um, and we did some, some things on, on body cameras this session. Um, and what happened to that poor woman was terrible. Do we have, um, so, so you think there's a legitimate issue here about race and policing, race and incarceration that yes. we need to address? I think, there's a, I think there's a legitimate conversation to be had about all that. Jail sure. standards? Yes. All that stuff? Yep. Good. Good afternoon, Mr. Speaker. Uh, do you feel that the state in the next uh, session should uh, look uh, at providing more uh, funding towards uh, public uh, universities and higher education? And do you think it's uh, an issue when schools like uh, Texas A&M have to partner with uh, private companies like Chevron in order to have the means to adequately uh, serve the growing number of high school graduates in the state? First part of your question was? Well, do you, well are you going to come back and look at uh, whether it's funding for higher ed? I'm going to actually tack on to your question. Of, I'll ask you affordability. This is his ed. question. Well, right. yeah, but it's my festival. Um, uh, I, like, I like his question about higher ed funding, but I hope you'll also kind of get into affordability because they're related issues. Is that yeah. something that's going to be on your mind? Well, first of all, I'd say that, that um, public education and higher education, I expect to be way up at the top of the agenda items for the next session. Um, I would also say that, that um, this last session, higher education came out in pretty good shape. Um, we added to the formulas. Right. We, we did um, quite a bit more in research. Tuition revenue bonds. Tuition revenue bonds for the first time in years, adding facilities right. that are badly needed in a lot of, a lot of campuses. Um, but you didn't address the question of affordability in that there were several bills that people filed, maybe I know a couple in the Senate at least, to try to either freeze or re-regulate tuition or try to tie tuition to the rate of inflation, nothing happened on that. No, and I'm, I'm my, speaking for myself, not all the House members, um, tuition should be watched closely. Right. We should do our best to control it. Um, but I don't really um, think we should over-regulate from the legislature. Right. Um, and I think many, many um, institutions of higher education in this state offer a pretty good deal. Um, well, uh, but and, me, and, yeah. and the state, yeah. over, the, over years, over the period of a number of, large number of years, the state's share of funding uh, public education as a percentage has gone down. Has, has really gone so down. So I want to be careful not to over-regulate when we're not 
going to make up the difference ourselves. You reminded me of something. So the regents at UT were getting ready to meet a couple weeks ago, and the lieutenant governor put out a, I would say he sort of threw a high hard one at the regents, a brushback pitch. He said, look, I don't want you guys considering, I'm going to get this wrong, but I don't want you guys considering an increase in tuition. And then they came back and they actually said, no, we're going to consider an increase in tuition. I did not see a similar letter from you. Was that an accident? No. No, it wasn't an accident. Your perspective is a little bit different. Yeah, I mean, they, they, um, I think they voted a, what, 2% increase or something? Or, and it was really more of a, you have the permission to look at and study and examine and all that. Yeah, I, I don't have a criticism for what they've done. That's okay with you. Okay, good. Uh, back over here, sir. Hello, Mr. Speaker. Thank you for being here. I uh, think you do a good job, and I think you try really hard to do what's right, so thank you. Thank you. Are you is running that, for the is house? That Jason Embry? <laughs> no. How did um, Jason Embry get to ask uh, the question? Okay, I'm sorry. There, there might be a district for this man. <laughs> but uh, with that compliment, <laughs> yes, pardon me? I'd like to ask you about Medicaid. Um, as you well, know, doing pretty well. Yeah, well. <laughs> as you know that. Uh, Medicaid managed care is now servicing people with disabilities. Uh, acute care has now gone into the system and their long-term services and supports will soon, in a few years, go into that system as well. Um, as, you, as I hope you know that a doctor's appointment for someone with a disability generally takes longer. It's gonna take more resources. Uh, what are we gonna do as a state to appropriately reimburse the providers so that we can show the rest of the country that Texas is doing it right and that right. people with intellectual and developmental disabilities can meaningfully participate in so life? So this is Medicaid reimbursement rate. That's Correct. What well, of course, you all tried to have the Medicaid reimbursement rate be higher in the House than it ultimately ended up in the budget, <clears> right? Am I remembering that correctly? I think that's correct. Yeah. Um, we also, um, as a result of this session on the, on the therapy rates, right. that's been very topical. Yeah, that and didn't go our, well, did it? It didn't go very well, no, no but, it's, um, but it's getting better. We're resolving it. Right. We don't do everything exactly right. Right. And sometimes we misjudge where things are, you know, and we misjudge things that happen in the real world. But um, we were also careful, and I'll give the appropriators a pat on the back for this, on, on that issue, they made it very clear that access wasn't to be impacted, but cost was. And I'm right. proud of our legislators looking out for cost. Very, very quickly, because I, we're running out of time and I have one more question I want to take. You all didn't do too much on health care this session. Now, I know you did some. You looked at consolidation. You did, you know, obviously some sunset stuff. I see, again, Representative Price right there, a bunch of other things. But the big question of the uninsured population in the state, <clears throat> any progress we made in the decline in the uninsured population was accidental or incidental to the work of the legislature, correct? Well, we did a lot in mental health. I would but, but, go you know back what, to. You, but you know what I'm but asking. I, I, yeah, and I, and I think this is, um, we've been at loggerheads with the federal government. Right. And um, we resist the Obama health care um, program. And uh, again, I think a year from now, the presidential election is our best shot for breaking through other. that logjam. Yeah. yeah. No second thoughts about the decision to stay away from the Affordable Care Act. Not here, because um, I think it's not even a close call in terms of where members are. Okay. Last question, ma'am. Hi, I'm a Hi. Hispanic woman. I make 54 cents to the white male dollar, and I'm desperately concerned about affordable health care for women. My question is, do you think that the state has an obligation to either pass equal pay for equal work or to make health care widely available and affordable for women who look like me um, across the state? Um, I believe. We're going to end up, we're going to end strong, apparently. Yes, we are. Yeah. Well, I believe that the equal pay for equal work, I think, is in the federal law. 
Um, and uh, and, I, and in terms of um, health care for women who uh, need help, it's been a major it's been a major focus of the legislature in the last couple of sessions to make sure that we're funding um, for that, and we've added to the budget quite considerably. Any more you can do? Well, if there's more that we need to do, we should. Women's health care is very important to me, um, and it's important. It's a critically important issue for the state of Texas. So sure, we ought to do more if we need to. Okay. Mr. Speaker, I'm glad we did this. It was fun. Well, that's one of us. That's one well, of us. Thank you. <laughs> well, the good news for you is it's over. Please <laughs> give you. Speaker Joe Strauss a hand. Thank you all. Thank you very Mr. much. Speaker, thank, thank you. Great. Very yeah. well. Um, thank you. Thank let you. me encourage you all to head out to the South Mall in the shadow of the tower. We have food trucks out there. Enjoy your lunch, and we'll see you back at 145 here or elsewhere. Thank you so much.